Thank you, Dan. If you would turn to Luke, and we're going to start at the very end of Luke 21 and go into Luke 22. As we worship during this very, very interesting time that we're going through. So this, at this time of the year, two of the biggest things that are on our minds are probably preparation for Easter. Some of you might be doing some Lent-type things as you prepare for Easter. Uh, others are preparing for whatever's lying ahead with regard to the coronavirus. And it's important uh, to actually see the coronavirus in light of Easter. Uh, the Bible calls us to see everything in the light of who Jesus is and what he did for us. And so I'm hoping and praying that by God's grace, he'll help us to do that, make that connection this morning. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 32, it says, The people who know their God will display strength and take action. The people who know their God will display strength and take action. And that's in the context of uh, tribulation going on at the time that's being described in the book of Daniel. It's so very important that we apply our knowledge of God to all that's happening right now. And that's why it also says in Jeremiah chapter 9, let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, this is God speaking, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. So if we wanted to ask ourselves, what is happening right now with this coronavirus and everything else that's going on? We could answer it by Jeremiah 9, which says, God is exercising loving kindness, justice, and righteousness. That's exactly what he's doing. He always does that in every situation, every period of history, no matter what is happening in our lives or in, happening in the world, that's the God who rules and reigns over everything. And he's exercising all of that, justice at, in various ways, loving kindness in various ways, righteous in, righteousness in all of it. Nothing unjust, unrighteous whatsoever. And so it's helpful to keep those things in mind because as we come to Luke chapter 21 and chapter 22, we find um, a discussion of the Last Supper, what is called the, or the Last Passover, which is a kind of a combination of uh, talking about the Passover, which was under the Old Covenant, and a discussion of the Lord's Supper. So you have the last Passover and the first Lord's Supper in what we call oftentimes the Last Supper, which was the meal that Jesus ate right before he was crucified. And it's interesting that the very last miracle Jesus worked before he entered into Jerusalem, as far as I understand, and all of this week of um, passion, passion week began, was raising Lazarus from the dead. And that's one of the reasons why on Sunday they put down palm leaves and coats and other things to make uh, a red carpet entrance for Jesus is because he raised Lazarus from the dead. And so one of the things that I want to help us think about as we begin looking at this passage is the God who's in charge, who's exercising loving kindness, justice, and righteousness, 
is a God who brings life out of death. He's a God who brings healing out of suffering. He's a God who brings good out of bad, good out of evil. He works that way because we live in a fallen world and there's much death and there's much suffering and there's much evil. But God is still ruling and reigning over that to bring life out of that and healing out of that and good out of that. And so we believe that God is good and that he's he does good. He's up to good things. And the Passover, the Old Testament celebration of God bringing life out of death, and the Lord's Supper, the New Testament or New Covenant celebration of God bringing life out of death, is something that ought to shape how we think about the coronavirus and everything else we go through in this life. That's one of the reasons why it's so important to preach the gospel and celebrate the Lord's Supper because we're reminded of the fact that the God we worship, the God who died for us and the person of Jesus, the God who's made all his promises to us, is a God who works in such a way that he brings life out of death. He brings healing out of suffering. He brings good out of evil. And that's the only way you can have peace and joy. It's the only way you can rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, is if you believe that's the God who rules and reigns, and that's what he's up to in the world and in the lives, certainly, of his people. And so what we have going on here in the book of Luke is we have this Picture being painted for us of what happened the last week of Jesus' life. In Luke 19, you see him entering into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Um, Then on Monday, he cleanses the temple. Then on Tuesday and Wednesday, he teaches in the temple. Then on Thursday, you have the Passover, which is the last Passover and the first Lord's Supper, you could say. Then on Friday, you have the crucifixion. Saturday is... He's buried all that day, and then the resurrection on Sunday. And so what I'd like to do is begin in verse 37 of Luke 21 and read for us the verses in Luke that have to do with what happened on Thursday, because that's where we are in the the Easter story. And then we'll try to understand how the various Gospels put all this together and how it applies to our lives today. So let me do that. As we begin, verse 37 of Luke 21. Now, during the day, he was teaching in the temple, but at evening, he he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. And all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. Then came the first day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, so that we may eat it. They said to him, Where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, 
When you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you, show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup after after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They said, no, nothing. And he said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag, and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with transgressors, for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. They said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. This is the word of God. As I mentioned, if you read all four accounts of what happened on this night, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's very interesting and very difficult to piece it all together because each of the writers are, each one is selective about what they include 
or don't include in their accounts. And all the accounts are not necessarily in chronological order. And so they're relaying the truth of what happened, but they may be relaying it in different orders and relaying selective parts of what happened, which makes it kind of challenging to piece it together. Just like if four of us saw an accident happen and each one of us was interviewed, each of us might remember different aspects of what they saw, what they heard, what they experienced, and some of it would overlap and some of it wouldn't. And some of it might even be in different orders because of just how we might remember it. Not that the disciples were miscommunicating at all, but they had different designs in how they were communicating the truth of what happened that night. But what I have up here and what I have in your notes is one way to understand what happened on that night. And I've organized it around the four cups that are typically used in the Passover. And so what I'd like to do is just touch on the various things that happened that night and then apply it to our lives uh, today. Um, obviously, in verses 37 and 38 of chapter 21, what we have is um, the setting for what is about to have in cha- happen in chapter 22 because it lets us know that on Tuesday and Wednesday, Jesus is teaching in the temple and then he's leaving and going to the Mount of Olives or Olivet. Now, that's important because Judas knows that that's his practice. And later on, Judas is going to actually bring uh, those who are going to be arresting Jesus to that place because he knows that is Jesus's practice. But getting into chapter um, 22, we see where they begin preparing for what they call the Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Passover was actually at the very beginning of the feast, and then the feast went on for seven days. And so the um, lamb would be sacrificed before sundown on the 14th of Nisan. That lamb had actually been selected on the 10th of Nisan, and some would say the family would keep the lamb Uh, close to them and with them so that there was a sense in which they got familiar with the lamb before they actually killed the lamb so that it would have a greater impact on them. They weren't just selecting a random lamb at the last minute and sacrificing that lamb. They were picking one out and for several days that lamb was close to them and near to them so that it would bring home the impact of what was actually happening. So that would take place typically between 3 and 5 o'clock on Passover day before sundown and then after sundown they would actually eat the Passover meal which when they reckon it from sunset to sun um, sunset it would be the 15th of Nisan when they actually ate the meal and so what we see happening here at the beginning of Luke 22 is we see uh, the Lord Jesus uh, sending uh, Peter and John to make all the preparations for this meal. And so the preparations are happening during the day on this Thursday. And and what they're preparing is they're preparing the lamb, they're preparing bitter herbs and unleavened bread and dipping sauce and wine. And obviously they found the room that Jesus told them to go to. Um, you might wonder what was going on there. Typically women carried pitchers 
uh, on their shoulders and not men. And so it would have been odd to meet a man carrying a pitcher. And so they knew that, okay, that must be the man Jesus was talking about. So they followed the man into the house. And we don't know if Jesus arranged it beforehand and kind of set things up and there was some kind of um, code that was given. You know, this is what uh, the people are going to say that are going to be from me or whether or not Jesus was just knew ahead of time because of his foreknowledge. But there is the implication that Because Judas is already trying to betray Jesus and trying to find a a place where he can betray Jesus so that the crowds don't see it happening and don't riot, because that's what the, um, the religious leaders are afraid of. They're afraid of starting a riot by arresting Jesus publicly. So they want to arrest him privately. So there appears to be, one way or the other, Jesus was preventing Uh, his arrest before the Passover was celebrated so that even Judas didn't know exactly where they were going to celebrate the Passover until they went to that place. And so all this is set up. They all uh, are prepared to eat this and there are four cups at this celebration. And in Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7, each of these cups are related to phrases in these verses. Because you remember the Passover is a celebration of what God did when he brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. And the tenth plague that he sent upon Egypt was the death of their firstborn sons. And so God used the death of the firstborn sons in Egypt to give life to the nation of Israel, to bring them out of slavery, to bring them from under the bondage that they were in there, and to bring them and move them toward the promised land. And so it says in Exodus 6, verse 6, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So the Lord tells the people of Israel to kill a lamb, and to take the blood and put it over their doorpost. And he tells them, if that blood is on your doorpost, then the death angel will pass over you, and not kill the firstborn in your family. That's where the word Passover comes from. It was a promise that the death angel would pass over you if you applied the blood. And so in these verses, these verses are, uh, they have phrases that are related to each of the cups. When it says, I will bring you out, that's related to the first cup in terms of setting you apart. The second cup is related to the phrase, I will deliver you from the plagues. I will redeem you is related to the third cup and I will take you as my own people is related to the fourth cup. And so all of this is understood by the disciples and this is what they're celebrating. They're celebrating the Passover. They're celebrating a past event, but the Lord Jesus is going to transform it into a new celebration. But it's still a celebration of life out of death. The Passover celebration was a celebration of life out of death. God killed the firstborn sons of the Egyptians and it resulted in them being Israel being set free. There was life out of death 
for where Jesus is going to establish the Lord's Supper, something that we celebrate each Sunday as a way of celebrating life out of death. Whose death? His death on our behalf. So it goes on in Luke 22, if you look at verses 14 through 18. Interestingly enough, it says that the Lord Jesus takes a cup in verse 17. And it says, And we had, when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. But you notice he also, in verse 17, takes another cup. And so there are at least two cups there, but the other two that were, would have been at the um, celebration of the Passover are not referenced. And so this cup probably refers to what they call the cup of sanctification, the cup of I'm setting you apart as, uh, apart as my people as I bring you out of Exodus. After that first cup, which was kind of the way of introducing the meal, there would be a hand-washing, as I understand it. And there, so the hand-washing wasn't, because of the fear of passing germs, it was ceremonial. And the interesting thing is, we don't see that reflected here in terms of any reference to that, but that seems to be the understanding of how they actually did what they did during that time. And so, you have the first cup that's partaken of by the disciples, and they share this cup, and then there's this ceremonial cleansing. The question is, how do other things that we find uh, fit into this whole story? For instance, the, the disciples having their feet washed by Jesus. Well, some would say this is probably when this also happened, is that the scenario is going on, the disciples have come in, they're all reclining at the table, the first cup has been consumed, Jesus is the host of the meal, And then they go to this ceremonial hand-washing and they realize that no one has washed anybody's feet in this whole situation, which would have been customary. But typically a slave would have done that for them and none of them uh, want to do that. If you read the other accounts, if you look at verses 24 through 27, they actually come in the, in the account by Luke after the drinking of the cup and the eating of the bread. In the other accounts, it appears that it comes beforehand. It appears what Luke has done is he's given us an account of how the supper went, and then he gives us an account of the kinds of discussions that happened during the supper. If you read the other accounts, it's much more likely that what happened in John, the foot washing, and the discussion of who's the greatest all happened at the same time. They're washing their hands. They realize their feet haven't been cleaned. Jesus gets up and begins to wash their feet. It is very possible that even before he gets up to wash their feet, they've begun talking about who's the greatest because they probably walked in vying for positions at the table. Because the closer you are to the host, the more important you are, the more significant you are. They were probably seated around a horseshoe setup, and the host would be at the 
the bottom of the horseshoe, so to speak, and everyone else would spread out from there. And the closer you got to the host, the more important, the more significant you would be. So it's very, very possible that at some point in there, there was this discussion of who's the greatest among us as they were vying for position at the table. And they're washing their hands and they realize they, no one's washed their feet. And so Jesus hearing this discussion, seeing what's going on, the Bible tells us that he gets up from dinner and begins to wash their feet. In John chapter 13, it says, During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. On down in John 13, after it's all done, Jesus says, For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. When you look at Luke 22, verse 27, it's very similar to what Jesus says in that verse when he says, For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. That's why it's very likely that that's when the washing happened. He says, I am among you. See me washing your feet? I'm among you as the one who serves. And so Jesus pictures for them, very likely at that point, what uh, greatness really uh, is all about. And so after Jesus gets back up and he's finished washing their feet and encouraged them with that exhortation, then the next thing that probably would have happened is that they began to eat the bitter herbs and had the dipping of probably the vegetables as well as uh, the unleavened bread and the dipping sauce. In Luke 22, verses 21 through 23, Luke records the discussion of um, the betrayer. In light of the other accounts, and, and in light of the fact that Luke is probably... Uh, recording the discussions after uh, they actually happened during the meal, just as a summary, as a way of contrast. In light of that, this appears to have been something that probably happened during the dipping portion of the ceremony. And the reason for that is, Jesus says in verse 21 of Luke 22, Behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. Hand up, his hand's on the table with mine, which might be the implication. His hand is close to mine, and some people believe that whereas they would lean on their left shoulder or left arm, John was probably right here because later he's going to lean back on Jesus' breast and ask him a question. The guy behind him would have been in the position of highest honor, and it was probably Judas. His hand is with me on the table. Um, If you look in John 13, uh, verse 21, it says this, When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, probably John. 
So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel, which would have been a piece of bread, and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. And then in verse 30, it says, so after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. So it's, it appears that Judas is a part of this Passover meal up until this point. He, he's, his feet are washed. Uh, he's partaken of the first cup. He's begun to eat of the bitter herbs and the unleavened bread to some degree. But then the, the morsel is dipped and given to Judas. And Jesus tells him, go ahead and do what you're going to do. And at that point, he leaves. That is one very likely scenario of what we find happening on this night. After that, you have the partaking of the second cup. Um, which was um, the cup of plagues, a reminder of the plagues of Egypt. And at that point, uh, the, the host would begin to talk about uh, the meaning of the Passover and, and remind uh, those who are celebrating of what happened in the book of Exodus. And they would also begin singing at that point, very likely. Uh, Psalm one one thirteen and 114. And at this point, is when they would also begin eating the lamb that has been prepared. And so um, what Luke records is simply um, the drinking and the eating of the bread that took place after the eating of the lamb, or at least uh, after um, the eating of the lamb had begun. Because if you... Look in the other accounts, for instance, in Matthew 26, it says, While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. While they were eating probably refers to while they were eating the Passover lamb, because that's what they came to do, uh, was to eat the Passover lamb to celebrate um, the Passover. And so uh, what we see taking place in verses 19 and 20 of Luke 22 it's probably after they've already begun to eat the lamb and may have already finished eating the lamb at that point. And, and so in verse 19, it says of Luke 22, when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That would probably would not have been the first time that Jesus broke bread on that evening. But he breaks the bread and he says, this is my body. Meaning this represents my body, which is for you. So he's beginning to give a different significance to the bread than what they would have thought in celebrating the Passover. He's beginning to make the connection that this celebration looks backward, but I want you to know that actually this celebration is also looking forward tonight. It's looking forward to my death that is coming up very, very quickly. And in verse 20, it says, In the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And that cup is more than likely the third cup of wine 
they would have had during the Passover, which was called the cup of redemption, very appropriately, or, or the cup of blessing. In 1 Corinthians 10.16, Paul talks about the fact that, is it not the cup of blessing that we partake in the Lord's Supper? And so the cup of redemption, or also called the cup of blessing, was the third cup of the evening. And so they would... They would um, have that third cup and they would do some more singing, probably from Psalm 115 and 116. And at this point, it's very likely that Jesus began after the the main eating has taken place, the lamb has been eaten and he's um, talked about the bread and the wine and how it represents him, that he's going to go on to give what they call his farewell discourse. And if you part a little bit of it's recorded in the book of Luke, verses 33 through 38. Um, excuse me, that's in John. But um, later on, actually in verses 28 through 38 of um, Luke 22, rather, is going to be, in a sense, a part of the farewell discourse. But there's a much longer account of what Jesus said on that night in the book of John. So if you read the end of John 13 and chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17, you get a a much fuller picture of all that Jesus said on that night. And let me just point out just a few of the things that he said to his disciples as he's on his way to the cross. In John 13, 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So when he says, I want you to love you, want you to love each other like I have loved you, he's ultimately saying, I want you to love each other by laying down your life for each other, just like I'm about to lay down my life for you. But he also goes on in chapter 14, verse 1 to say, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. The implication being, I'm going to lay down my life for you. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be painful, especially for me, but also for you. But you don't need to be troubled. You don't need to be fearful because God is going to take care of you and and you can trust God in these circumstances. He goes on in chapter 14, verse 27 to say, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. What do you, have, what do you need not to be troubled or fearful? Not just good health, not just a good economy. You need to... See and believe the truth about Jesus. That's why he says, I give you peace that the world doesn't know anything about. Their peace is rooted in good health. Their peace is rooted in um, good, a good economy. Their peace is rooted in being able to somehow anticipate what's going to happen. But Jesus says, I give you a peace that transcends all that, isn't connected to all that, and it's rooted in me and what I've done for you, and what I've promised you because of what I've done for you. And so that farewell discourse uh, probably included this new commandment discussion. Uh, It talked about a home in our Father's house, asking in his name that another helper would come to be with them, and the importance of loving obedience. 
It's very likely that Jesus began this farewell discourse in the upper room, but continued it outside in the city. Because if you read in um, the accounts that you find in John, you find at some point that the Lord Jesus um, says, let us go from here. Actually, John 14, verse 31. So all of John 14 and even before that is something he was saying in the upper room. Then it says, in John 14, 31, get up, let us go from here. And then he continues on to continue talking to the disciples and, and ministering to them. And so part of the discussion happens in the upper room. Part of it happens on the way to where they're going to cross the Kidron Valley and go back to the Mount of Olives. But all of this um, is related to um, Jesus comforting his disciples. And so what we see is the fourth cup is partaken of by them, and there's further singing, probably Psalm 117 and 118, before they actually leave. And then... Uh, there's other discussions that take place. And what's hard to know is whether or not what we find in verses 28 through 38 happened before uh, Jesus left the upper room or after he left the upper room or maybe both. There might have been um, multiple times Jesus said to Peter, Simon, you're going to betray me. Not betray me, you're going to deny me rather. Because Peter couldn't imagine that he was going to deny Jesus. And so he kept saying, I'll never deny you. I'll, I'll die with you. I'll go to prison. And it's almost like Jesus probably repeatedly had to tell Peter, Peter, I'm telling you, before the cock crows this morning, you're going to deny me three times. So he may have said that in the upper room and even said it afterwards. At some point, there was a discussion about uh, the two swords, which... We find in Luke where Jesus begins to tell him, things are changing. You know, you, you've been with me all this time and you never had to worry about anything. I've taken care of you. I even sent you out and told you, don't take a bag with you. Don't take an extra pair of sandals or, or anything like that because everything's going to be fine and you're going to be taken care of. And he says, you know what? That's changing now. You need to get a bag. You need to get some sandals. You need to take, take a, a sword if you don't have one. And so you have that discussion that happened at some point, possibly in the city before they actually crossed the Kidron Valley. The reason I say that is if you look at the other accounts, it says things like after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And, and it records Jesus warning Peter about denying him, just like what we see in Luke. And so we have Jesus speaking truth to his disciples trying to encourage them that, yes, something incredibly significant, significant is about to happen, that he's going to be the ultimate fulfillment of all that the Passover points to, which means he's going to die. He's going to lay down his life. He's going to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But he says all that he says to say, but don't, get, don't misunderstand me. This isn't the end. This is the beginning. Because God is the kind of God who brings life out of death, especially life out of my death. And so don't be troubled, don't be fearful. You can actually trust me in all of this. Well, as I wrap this up, if you would turn to John chapter 12. 
because this is actually an, an account of something that happened just before this Passover meal and just before this Last Supper. Where in John 12, we've got in verse, if you look at verse 20, there were some people that came to see Jesus. And they find Philip, it says in verse 21, and they say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now it's very interesting uh, what happens because in verse 22, Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus says this in response to their, their stated goal, which is to see Jesus. He says in verse 23, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So what is that really saying? The people come, the Greeks come and say, we want to see Jesus. Jesus says, okay, let me tell you how you can see me. Watch what is about to happen to me. Because I, like a seed, I'm going to be planted and die. But I'm going to bring life out of that. The meaning is, Jesus says, um, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I'm going to show you me. This is, this is me. This is me taking on the wrath of God and dying in the place of sinners that, that they might have life. If you see that, you see Jesus. If you don't see that, you've totally missed Jesus. You might see a, you might see a moral teacher. You might see a good guy. You might see somebody that you think, oh, well, you know, he treated people well. You know, maybe I should follow his example. But you won't really see Jesus unless you see him glorified in terms of being shown to be who he is and and shown to do what he came to do, which is to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What happened when the lambs were sacrificed in the Old Testament in the sacrifice of the Passover and the blood was put on the lentils? The people were rescued from the wrath of God. They were also delivered from bondage to the Egyptians, and they were put in a place where they could enjoy the promised land could enjoy the promises of God. The same things hap- happen when we trust in Christ, the ultimate Passover lamb. We are rescued from the wrath of God. We are set free from bondage, slavery to sin, and we have been given the promises of God. And one day we will enjoy the ultimate promised land, which is the new heavens, new earth, heaven that God promises us. How does this apply practically for us? Well, if the celebration of the Passover was a celebration of life out of death, and the celebration of the Lord's Supper is a celebration of life out of death, how do you truly celebrate that? Well, there's three different ways, and it applies to the three things we have on the front of our bulletin. 
when we talk about resting in Jesus, hoping in God, and pursuing love. The only way I can have life through Christ is if I die. But die to what? Die to my own righteousness. Die to my own goodness. Die to the idea that I can be good enough to be accepted by God simply based on who I am and what I've done. I have to die to my own righteousness and the hope of ever being accepted by God and being rescued from the wrath of God based on my own goodness. I have to die to that idea and that hope and that trust and I have to put my trust in the righteousness of Christ, put my trust in the death of Christ on my behalf. Through that death, I will live. If I die to righteousness, my own righteousness, I will live through the righteousness of Christ. As a result of that, being reconciled to God, I'm to hope in God in such a way that I die to the things of this world. That's why last week Paul could say, this world has been crucified to me. In what sense? I don't look to the world for the help I need or the happiness my heart longs for. I have have died to that hope. That is not my hope. My hope is not in my own righteousness. My hope is not in this world, but my hope is in God through Christ who will be my helper and who will be my happiness. Then finally, the death that I am to die is to my own will. God calls me to pursue love. And pursuing love means obedience to his word from my heart. And that means dying to my will being done to do God's will. And that's why Jesus could say, if you're going to follow me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. The cross was an instrument of death. You have to die if you want to be like me. And the, the reality that I've truly been born again and that I'm putting all my hope in the righteousness of Christ and I've died to hoping in my own righteousness is that I will also want to put my hope in God and I will also want to do the will of God. Will I hope perfectly? No. Will I die to my will and do God's will perfectly? No. But I will have a new heart that knows that this world cannot satisfy me and God is my hope. And I will know that my life is supposed to be given to doing the will of God and that my enjoyment of God comes out of my dying to my will to do his will, that my enjoyment of real life comes through death so that whenever I celebrate the Lord's Supper, and there's a sense in which I am renewing my trust in the righteousness of Christ and dying to my own righteousness, but I'm also renewing my hope in God for the help I need and the happiness I long for. And I'm renewing my commitment to do the will of God, not to be accepted by God, but because I am accepted by God and that as I die, I enjoy life. I die to my will to do his will. So in a fallen world, God brings life out of death, healing out of suffering, good out of evil, good out of bad. And basically it comes down to trust and love. How does God want me to trust in this situation? He wants me to trust in the righteousness of Christ, in God and not this world, to trust in his word and his will and not my own word and ideas. And what does he want me to do? 
He wants me to love people. And that may mean sharing some of the things that other people are hoarding. That may mean um, encountering people in ways that might put myself at risk. We should be wise, but we should not set aside the call to love in these situations. God calls us to trust and to love and to see that we can do it hopefully and confidently with peace because we know that God is the God who brings life out of death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would encourage us in it and through it and that you'd grant us grace, indeed, all of us here, to die to our own righteousness and to trust in your righteousness, Lord Jesus, and your righteousness alone, to die to the world and looking to the world for what we need and desire and to put our hope more and more in you, Father, and to die to doing our own will and to live to do your will that we might enjoy the life that is ours in Christ in greater, deeper, richer ways. Please help us and may you receive the glory and may we and others receive the good. In Jesus' name, amen.